Hello, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, August the 6th. And today we um, somewhat conclude our, uh, our study of the book of James. Next week, we're going we're gonna to come back and just sort of look at an overview of the last couple of chapters, because I think one of the issues that can happen when you're going chapter by chapter and verse by verse is, is that we can sort of start to lose the forest for the trees a little bit. And so, um, but today we are going to conclude the book in the sense of looking at chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today we're in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. I'm reading from the NIV. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. A very dignified Um, elder in a church was visiting a lady in a nursing home who was confined to a wheelchair. And as he stood to leave, the lady asked him to have a word of prayer. So he gently took her hand and prayed that God would be with her to bring her comfort, strength, and healing. And when he finished praying, her face began to glow. She said softly, would you help me to my feet? Not knowing what else to do, he helped her up. At first, she took a few uncertain steps. And then she began to jump up and down and then to dance and shout and cry with happiness until the whole nursing home was aroused. And after she was quieted, the solemn elder hurried out to his car, closed the door, grabbed hold of the steering wheel and prayed this little prayer, Lord, don't you ever do that to me again. And I guess the moral of the story is if you don't believe that God will answer your prayer, then don't pray for him to do so. We've come to the end of this series on the letter of James, but just because we've come to the last few verses doesn't mean that the James hasn't got a lot more to teach us. But before we look at these last few verses, let's remind ourselves of what James has been teaching us from the very start as we all look at maturity. In James 1, first four verses, he reminded us to stop acting like children when it comes to difficulties. He told us to grow up and be patient because we have difficulties for a reason. In chapter 2, he reminded us to stop acting like children who say one thing but live another way. He told us, grow up, mature, and realize that faith alone is is no good to anyone unless it has legs attached to it, some some deeds, action. In chapter 3, he reminded us to stop talking to each other like children and be careful what we say. He, He told us to grow up and mature and to use our tongue properly for the right reasons. In chapter 4, he reminded us to stop acting like children when it comes to disagreements and wanting things that other people have got. He told us to, to grow up, stop fighting and coveting. And then in chapter five, he reminded us, and he is going to remind us today to stop acting like children when it comes to stuff, to material things. He's going to tell us to mature when it comes to suffering. And to help us grow up, he gets our attention on the topic of prayer, specifically in terms of how to pray and when to pray. In verse 13 of chapter five, 
Are any among you in trouble? They should pray. James reminds us that it's in times of trouble or suffering, we need to be praying. And when he talks about suffering, he's talking about any kind of suffering, whether that's due to sickness or, or death and bereavement, grief, disappointment, persecutions, loss. As Christians, there are times we know we should pray, but we're not sure what to pray for. So let's take a couple of suggestions. Let's look at some things from James. And, and num- number one, ask God to remove the suffering. Paul, Paul did, and, and when he was suffering greatly, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, Three times I prayed to the Lord about this and asked him to take it away. Paul, as a great man of faith as he was, wasn't too proud to ask God to take his suffering away. But then secondly, ask God to give us the strength to endure the suffering. But if it's the Lord's will that that we bear it, that we have it, then 1 Corinthians 10 says every test that you have experienced is the kind that normally comes to people. But God keeps his promise, and he will not allow you to be tested beyond your power to remain firm. At the time you are put to the test, he will give you the strength to endure it and so provide you a way out. So every Christian needs to know that if God is allowing the suffering to continue, he's going to give us the strength to get through it. And every believer needs to know that God may not always remove the source of our suffering because it might be for our own good. Psalm 119 says, before you punished me, I used to go wrong, but now I obey your word. Psalm 119.71, my punishment was good for me because it made me learn your commands. Psalm 119.75, I know that your judgments are righteous, Lord, and that you punish me because you are faithful. But again, we need to remind ourselves that if our suffering is for our good, God's going to give us the strength to endure it. So those are a couple of examples of of what to pray for during difficult times. And, And so now we need to ask ourselves, well, who should we pray for? Well, we need to pray for ourselves, but maybe we need also to pray for the source of our suffering. And Jesus tells us to do exactly that in Luke 6, 27 through 28, when he says, But I tell you who, are, who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So in times of suffering, let us pray, because not only is it a wonderful privilege to pray, it's also a great source of comfort when we're being afflicted. Now, as Christians, we know that it's not all about suffering. There are great times of happiness and joy. And, and in James chapter 5, 13, are any among you in trouble, they should pray. Are any among you happy, they should sing praises. Now, happiness is the opposite of suffering. And, and when we're happy, it's usually because we're free from trouble. And it's during those times of happiness that we're more likely to express our happiness in, in song. And as Christians, this is something we, should, we shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed to do whenever and wherever we feel the urge just to praise the Lord. When we read through the Psalms, this is something David did time and time again in Psalm 92, how good it is to give thanks to you, O Lord, to sing in your honor, O Most High God, to proclaim your constant love every morning and your faithfulness every night. David was a man after God's own heart, so we should be too. Whether we are aware of this or not, singing praises to God actually has the power to make the situation better. In Colossians 3.16, Christ's message in all its richness must live in your hearts. Teach and instruct one another with all wisdom. Sing psalms, hymns, and sacred songs. Sing to God with thanksgiving in your hearts. So let's ask the question, when was the last time we just burst out into singing praises to God? Is it because we're so focused on our suffering that we've forgotten what God has done for us in the past? Hasn't God done enough in our lives to prompt us to praise him passionately in song? What excuse can I possibly give for refusing to praise 
God for his glory and his goodness. Well, some people I can, you know, already hear saying, well, I don't have a good singing voice. Well, we need to know that God is not concerned with how it sounds. He is concerned that it is coming from the heart. Heaven is described by John in the, in the book of Revelation as a place where singing praises to God and to Jesus is this ongoing activity. So if we don't sing praises to God on earth, when we can, can we really expect to be allowed praise to, to praise God in heaven? I don't know. Singing praises to God is just as important as, as praying. And, and now James is going to continue with the theme of prayer, but this time he's going to get a little more specific. He says in 14 through 15, are any among you sick? Then they should send to, for the church elders who will pray for them and rub olive oil on them in the name of the Lord. This prayer made in faith will heal the sick. The Lord will restore them to health and the sins they have committed will be forgiven. James says in a time of sickness, pray. And some believers, some believe that the anointing with oil was symbolic, representing the influences of the Holy Spirit. It, it was used for miraculous pers- purposes, but we we see examples in the New Testament of the anointing with oil being used for medicinal purposes. He, in Luke chapter 10, he went over to him, poured oil and wine on his wounds and bandaged them, and, and then he put the man on his own animal and took him to an inn where he took care of him. So, so, so maybe, you know, save some money and stay clear of the Internet, which promises uh, miraculous healing oils. I don't, I don't know. But now again, some believe that this passage is talking about miraculous healing where the elders were called because they possessed the gift of healing. But there's a problem with that, and the problem is that it's the assumption that every elder in every church possessed the gift of healing. First of all, we have no record anywhere in the New Testament that every elder in every single church possessed the gift of healing. And secondly, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, there's no mention that elders required the gift of healing to be an elder. I believe that the elders were called because they were leaders in the congregation. So James 5.16, so then confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you'll be healed. The prayer of a good person has a powerful effect. Now, when we say more righteous here, or we don't, we don't misunderstand what we're saying. We're not saying that they were holier or more uh, or perfect. But what we're saying is that those who are more they're more mature. The right, the, the righteous have more maturity than those who have, you know, those who have grown up in the faith and the, than those that are new to the faith. That's why he uses Elijah as a man of great faith who prayed to God and God answered his prayer. In verse 17 through 18, Elijah was the same kind of person we are. He prayed earnestly that there would be no rain and no rain fell on the land for three and a half years. And then once again, he prayed and the sky poured out its rain and the earth produced crops. Do you remember the story in First Kings 18 where Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed down to the ground with his head between his knees? And, and he told his servant, go and look toward the sea. The servant went and returned saying, I didn't see a thing. And seven times and all Elijah, told, he, he told him to go and look. And the seventh time he returned and said, I saw, no, I saw a little cloud, no bigger than a man's hand coming up from the sea. And so the sky was covered with dark clouds and the wind began to blow and a heavy rain began to fall. God was indeed answering Elijah's prayer through, through natural means. Now, what does this all mean for us today? Well, first of all, in times of physical sickness, we can call for the elders, for the mature spiritual leaders of the church. I mean, who doesn't want the prayers of the mature working on our behalf? And notice an important point in all this. We're, we're to call for them, 
we're, we're to call for them. We've not necessarily to wait for them to call on us. And, and after we've made the call, we're to ask them to pray for us. And, and when they pray for us, we, we, we both know that these types of prayers are both powerful and they're effective. James is telling us that people who don't pray regularly but focus on, on, on our own suffering rather than praising God are, are, more, are more likely to fall away. And those who don't call for help from other mature church members are more likely to fall away. And it's those type of believers which James has in mind and then the next few verses. But the emphasis seems to be more on the church's responsibility to reconcile them back to truth. Now, when it comes to restoring believers to the church, we need to understand that this is a responsibility given to all of us. Galatians 6, my friends, if someone is caught in any kind of wrongdoing, those of you who are spiritual should set him right, but you must do it in a gentle way and keep an eye on yourselves so that you will not be tempted to help carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will obey the law of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, our friends, to warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So first of all, this is not so much for, 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 um, for your benefit, but for the benefit of the one who is wandering from the truth. Anyone who wanders from the truth is in danger. James 5.19, my brothers, if one of you wanders away from the truth and somebody brings him back, you may be sure that whoever brings a sinner back from his wrong will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You see, the reason we could be in, in danger of death is because we've wandered away from the source of forgiveness. 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7, If then we say that we have fellowship with him, yet at the same time we live in darkness, we're lying both in our words and in our actions. But if we live in the light, just as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, from every sin. In other words, we have separated ourselves from the blood of Christ to cleanse us of our sins. And then that's when we're in danger of suffering the consequences of sin, which according to Romans chapter 6, 23, well, sin pays its wage in death. We need to listen and to take note of the warning which Peter gives in 2 Peter chapter 2, 20 through 22. Through 22, if people have escaped from the corrupting forces of the world through their knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then are again called and conquered by them, such people are in worse condition at the end than they were in the beginning. It would have been better, much better for them to have known the way of righteousness, to have never known the way of righteousness, than to know it and then turn away from the sacred command that was given them. What happened to them shows that the Proverbs are true. A dog goes back to what it is has vomited and a pig that has been washed goes back to roll in the mud. When I truly understand the spiritual spiritual condition of myself, of our friends, of my loved ones, then it should move me. It should move us to do something. But how do we go about restoring those who have left? Well, it requires some special attributes. First of all, we need brothers and sisters who are spiritual. Galatians 6 1. My friends, if someone is called in any kind of wrongdoing, those of you who are spiritual should set him right, but you must do it in a gentle way and keep an eye on yourselves so that you will not be tempted to. Paul reminds us that those who are spiritually mature need to get involved with the restoring. Those who possess a spirit of gentleness need to get involved with the restoring. Those who are constantly examining themselves need to get involved in the restoring. 
because they realize that they too can easily fall into the same fault. Galatians 6, 2 said, help carry other, one another's burdens. And in this way, you obey the law of Christ. Secondly, Paul reminds us that those who have a willingness to bear one another's burdens that need to be, they need to be involved in the restoring because we know, uh, we know restoring one another takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. Galatians 6, 3, if you think you are something when you are really nothing, you are only deceiving yourself. And thirdly, Paul also reminds us that our responsibility is not fulfilled by simply pointing out our brother or sister's faults, but by being humble. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 says the same thing as the Lord's servant, you must not quarrel. You must be kind toward all, a good and patient teacher who is gentle as you correct your opponents. For it may be that God will give them the opportunity to repent and come to know the truth, and then they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil, who, the devil who had caught them and made them obey his will. We all know that there's nothing worse than some, an arrogant brother or sister trying to help us by just throwing a bunch of scripture in our face. Those that are doing the restoring need also to have a reasonable knowledge and understanding of God's word. Second Timothy chapter two, as the Lord's servant, you must not quarrel. You must be kind toward all a good and patient teacher. The restorer must be able to teach and apply God's word to the situation. There are those helping with the restoring need. Those that are helping with the restoring need to be patient. Second Timothy chapter two says, as the Lord's servant, you must not quarrel. You must be kind toward all a good and patient teacher. We are so patient when it comes to our own faults because we know God is patient with us. The restorer needs to treat the wanderer with that same patience. And then sixthly, those who are restorers need to be able to demonstrate their sincere love towards that person. That includes when it comes to rebuking someone or simply when they're in repentance. So restoring believers need special people with special attributes. And Jesus tells us the proper way in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go to him, show him his fault, but do it privately, just between yourselves. If he listens to you, you've, you've won your brother back. But if he will not listen to you, take one or two other persons with you so that every accusation may be upheld by the testimony of two or more witnesses, as the scripture says. And if he will not listen to them, then Tell the whole thing to the church. Finally, if he will not listen to the church, treat him as though he were a pagan or a tax collector. The work of reconciliation or correction is probably pretty unpleasant, but it has the potential for great joy. Joy in heaven, Luke fifteen seven. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 respectable people who, didn't, who do not need to repent. And joy in our hearts in John, in uh, uh, Third John, chapter one. Nothing makes us makes me happier than to hear that my children live in the truth. But in and through all this, when it comes to this idea of restoring, and when this idea of prayer, with this all of this idea, it comes down really to to two questions that we'll close with. Do we really love the Lord? Do we really love God? And do we really love one another? Amen. And God bless.